Welcome to our podcast, Murray Musings, where we talk about Andy Murray's antics on and off the court. Our contributors are Rashmi, Scott, and my name is Peter. This episode, we'll be discussing the Big Four with our special and wonderful guest, Joe. I believe we've lived in the golden age of tennis with the Big Four. Some quick stats to reel off. All four members regularly made it to the latter stages of the majors. Out of 61 majors between the 2005 French Open and 2019 U.S. Open, the only finals not to include any member of the Big Four were the two majors of 2014 and 2020 U.S. Open. They occupied 10 consecutive major finals, winner and runner-up, from the 2010 U.S. Open to the 2013 Australian Open. One of my favorite stats is this. Since 2008, they have occupied all four semifinal spots on four occasions at the 2008 U.S. Open, 2011 French Open, 2011 U.S. Open, and uh, 2012 Australian Open, as well as taking three of the four spaces on nine other separate occasions. In 2011, they occupied 14 out of a possible 16 Grand Slam semifinal slots. In the same period, only twice have two have two or more not made the semifinal stage. This was in 2009 and 2010 French Open, while in 2012 they took 13 out of 16 Grand Slam semifinal slots. At the Olympics, members of the Big Four took five out of the nine available singles medals in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and also including doubles, have a total of five golds, two silvers, and a bronze from these games. Murray has three Crazy. Olympic medals, while Not. Nadal and Federer have two Olympic medals each. Uh, Murray is the only one to have won two medals medals at the same tournament taking both the singles gold medal and the mixed doubles silver medal at the 2012 summer olympics with laura robson he is also the only male player to win two gold medals in the singles event djokovic is the only member not to have won a gold medal in any event so far although he did win the singles bronze medal in 2008 the big four along with rod laver tony roche and Yvonne Lendl are the only men in open era history to reach the semifinals at all four majors in a single calendar year. And that is why wow. we are living in one of the best golden ages of tennis. <laughs> so, how does that sound, y'all? <laughs> what an intro! What an intro! <laughs> um, that... Take some time to digest all of them stats. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. That is, uh, I mean, where do you even go from there, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, all talk about our favorite matches in, in between all of the big four. Um, I'll start off. Uh, my favorite matches from Rafa and Andy um, definitely start off, you happen, uh, to have the 2008 semifinals. Um, coming into form for his first final, he... Uh, Andy uh, beat the current French Open and Wimbledon champ. Um, it was just inspiring how Rafa was, of course, uh, predicted to win against Andy, who is just still young. I mean, he just started playing in 2005, so three years off going into his first final. It, it was just a huge day for Andy, uh, and it was actually the first time that he beat Rafa on tour. Um, another one was the Madrid finals in 2015, where he yes, won 6-3, 6-2. Just amazing. On clay, um, I remember everyone talking about Clay Murray. <laughs> it was clay fun. Good. 
Yeah, Clay Ray. Ray. Um, I don't know. Like, I love that. Sounds like a Pokemon or something. Yeah, it was just like, okay, Clay Ray, I think I can get used to it. Um, And I definitely have. Uh, So, yeah. Um, And then also the uh, Tokyo 2011 match where Rafa was in form and uh, he won the first set 6-3. But then Andy came back just roaring away where he uh, beat Rafa 6-2, 6-0. It was just a flawless victory. That that final set, that final set, right? That final set, Andy uh-huh. won all but four points in that final set in that match. That's Which is insane against Rafa Nadal. <laughs> like, just like, insane. insane. Crazy performance from, from Andy in that match. I think from those matches you've uh, you've stated, I think the uh, the U.S. Open uh, 2008 sticks out as, as sort of one of my favourite ones and first tennis memories. You know, I'd watch uh-huh. it casually casually before then, and it it was a f- like four or five years after that where I sort of really became into the sport. But I think that match always sticks quite vividly in my me- memory for how good Andy was. You know, obviously at that point he'd, he'd not done. A major amount, and, and Rafa was the favourite in the match, having already won the you know the French Open multiple times. But I think Andy's, I think the aggression in that match from Andy that always sticks out to me how aggressive he was. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in that sort of the match, he, he he sort of took it to Rafa in that match, and I think that's what what got him the win. Um, and that was sort of his one of the the early memories of of watching Andy uh, for me, especially in the slam level. I know he'd obviously played Wimbledon and the other slams before that, but that particular event and that match, it sort of sticks in the memory as obviously it was his his first slam final. So it always sticks in the memory for me, that one between, between the two of them. Yeah, and they're both so they're both so young. If you go watch the highlights mm. of that match, yeah. they're both so yeah. young. Like Nadal, Nadal's wearing his like pirate shorts and like massive like yeah. bandana, <laughs> and like Andy's hair is just like all over the place underneath his cap. It's hilarious to watch. Like it's and it's yeah, as Joe's just said, like it's like such a high quality match from both of them as well. Um, and it's yeah, it's impressive that Andy pulled off the victory because he was a massive underdog, as Andy has been a lot in his career. But exactly, um, always but, yeah, the underdog. No, Absolutely um, great match. And where they had hair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so for the most part, aside from their early career meeting in the round of 16, they have always met in the quarterfinal round or more. Um, so in the important semifinals and finals um, and a few championship matches uh, for uh, some Masters events. Um, and so I actually just watched the highlights of Rafa and Andy's first match, um, which was at the Australian Open. And I feel like he could have won the second set. Um, he uh, was uh, 4-1 up. So uh, he had the first set 7-6. And then uh, Rafa came back and won 6-4. 4-6-6-3-6-1 was the final score for Rafa. It was an amazing match, and I completely forgot about it. I honestly don't know if it was too late for me to stay up or what, but it, it was a pretty good early match of uh, how their uh, careers would go. And uh, let's go on to uh, Fed versus Andy. The head-to-head is 11 for Andy and Roger's favorites, 11 to 14. Um, they have the closest head-to-head for the Murray matches. In fact, Andy was ahead in the head-to-head in his earlier matches. It started off uh, 2-1, 2-2, and then it jumped to 6-2, 6-4, 6-5, and Andy was well ahead, 7-5, 8-5. Like a tennis score. 
Yeah, it, and then uh, they tied the it up eight to eight, then ten to eight, ten to nine, and then uh, eleven. That's to what nine, it's called. And... They never played a game after that. They, they yeah. Not, nothing happened after that. If they would have stopped at eleven nine, I would have been fine. <laughs> um, that was in uh, the 2013 Australian Open, and we'll talk about that in just a moment when Roger pulled away and. Uh, so, of course, 14-11 uh, in uh, Roger's favor is how it stands as of right now. So, uh, of course, they've met quite a few times in a lot of great matches. And so my favorite matches um, happen to be the gold medal match it, because it was the most emotional mm-hmm. with Andy being his home tournament and uh, winning his first gold medal was just just amazing and when he hugged that little kid afterwards just uh, having the British flag draped over him it was just great yeah I think that match in the context of that year when he lost to Roger uh, on that court in Wimbledon Mm. that year and how he managed to beat him in straight sets on that very court was just crazy yeah yeah for for me, for yeah. me, I remember the, the 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 contrast in like the crowds because obviously at Wimbledon, like the crowd is obviously a lot more like silent and like you know like reserved, uh, and they are they're obviously very pro Roger Federer because you know it's Roger. Whereas like at the Olympics, <laughs> I think there was probably a lot more like you know just general sports fans there who just love like sports yeah. and obviously a lot more like British fans. So. It was almost like a like a loud kind of raucous energy there that kind of I feel probably helped Andy a lot more than Roger. So from memory, I think the the Olympic tickets were sort of like um, you could select up to a certain amount of sports, and obviously I think there was more allocation to UK based residents. So I think that's what you know that will mm-hmm. have will have helped. And you know I think you're definitely right, Scott. The contrasting atmospheres, you know. The, I don't think the the Wimbledon crowd was was necessarily bad, but you could tell it it was a lot more split. Where whereas the Olympics crowd, I bet Roger was like thinking, "This is definitely not not centre court of Wimbledon." Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it felt like you know you kind of looked like for him probably felt like a a Davis Cup away tie. It was that yeah. sort of in Andy's favour. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm not. I'm not complaining about. You know, it's no. it's, it's it's rare that that Federer doesn't have the uh, the, the bulk of the crowd support. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I've read somewhere that Roger has actually said that that match with Andy at the Olympics uh, was the uh, w- one of the only matches in his career, or the match that sticks out in his career as the one where he felt like the entire crowd was against him or mm. was cheering against him. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that kind of backs mm-hmm. up <laughs> backs up that idea. But, very rare, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very rare to see, very rare. But, yeah, Another match uh, I liked between Murray and Federer, the 2008 Tennis Masters Cup match. This was a round-robin, and this was the only round-robin where Roger didn't reach the semis after. So Andy had knocked him out. And this was like, it was a very dramatic match. Um, Federer won the first set. Andy served for the second, lost it 5-0, managed to win it in the second set tiebreak. And you could just tell in that match, Roger was very irritated at how well Andy was playing. It was yeah. like constant hitting on hitting the net, like, and he was annoyed at himself. And Andy was just getting the job done. And Andy actually didn't even need to win that match. He had already qualified for the semis. And the fact that he was like at hundred percent, just wanting to knock Roger out and get another match win against him in the head-to-head was quite funny, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see it. 
he did end up losing. I think not Novak ended up winning the tournament that year, though. Andy didn't win the the tournament, obviously, until twenty sixteen. But <laughs> yeah, so I think we can all come into agreement with uh, the uh, favorite match of ours is the two thousand thirteen semifinal at the Australian Open. It took the fourth game of the fourth set for Roger to break Andy. Andy was playing so well; it lasted four hours. Um, it was high-quality match play from both, and with a five-set score of 6-4, 6-7, 6-3, 6-7, 6-2. The last set was practically flawless tennis, and I was excited for the championship match, and I was so hopeful for Andy's uh, uh, dreams for winning a Australian Open title finally. So, But let's, was, focus, let's focus on the win. Let's focus on the win that he had against Roger. Uh, like, I, I remember that match because, like, I really wanted to mention that match on this episode and I was so excited to mention it. And then I noticed that Peter was going to mention it on this episode and I was so like, because it is such a good match. I would highly, highly recommend this match. It's my favourite one of Andy and Federer by far as well. Like, it's... Uh, I think the footwork in this match is just so good because obviously both Roger and Andy are both such good movers on the tennis court. And this is like seeing both of them at like the peak of their powers. Like it's just insane to watch. Like, And it's often, I feel like it's often overlooked a lot because it's one of these kind of rare matches that's such good quality and it's in a semi-final, but neither of those two players won the tournament. So like it's often kind of overshadowed by a lot of different finals um, and, you know, semi-finals mm-hmm. that have been won by the eventual winner of the tournament. So... I don't know. I think if anybody if anybody is listening to this episode and hasn't seen that match of Andy's, go and watch it because it will make you a Murray fan. It will make you a Murray fan. So it's it's just so good. Such. I think it, I think at that point it was sort of carrying on the momentum from the um, the U.S. Open 2012 win, mm-hmm. and you know you, you sort of thought you know he's taking it to the next level with the confidence. Obviously, he'd lost the Wimbledon final in 2012. Uh, to Roger and then he'd gone on to beat Roger in the Olympics final and then beat Novak in the uh, US Open final which is the, the the first slam final he'd you know he'd won against a member of the the big four like looking at Andy's slam finals before uh, 2016 Wimbledon you know he's only ever faced either uh, Roger or Novak in them and you know he got to that next level by uh, beating Roger um in that Olympics final and then Novak in the US Open 2012 um, final and then finally the Australian Open, the semi-final against um, Federer. And, you know, it was a it was a very, very good performance and uh, unlucky to not win it in straights. Um, yeah. It was a very, very good match and it was sort of then when you're thinking Andy's consistently beating these top guys now. Like, I know he was always doing it getting the wins outside of the slams when he was doing it in the slams it sort of went to another level um and you know for the final you know you thought it was going to be closer than it than it ended up being yeah. it was quite a um I think it was just this was a straight sets loss in the final I don't I don't I don't remember I don't remember either I don't it definitely wasn't sort of expectations wise you, you thought it was going to be Considering what happened at the U.S. Open final, it was definitely, you know, not as as close as um, as I expected it to be. But no, that match beforehand sort of showed, you know, Andy's sort of level around that time. I think that sort of that period yeah. from 
2012 through to because you know even at the start with the uh, the Australian Open semi final against Novak, um, that was you know five almost five hours, um, showing his level there and so that sort of period yeah. from 2012 to sort of mid. Sort of to early 2013, before the back injury, you know that was sort of showed one of Andy's highest levels in his career. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Definitely, definitely. I would agree. So let's uh, move on to Novak and Andy's matches. They are actually born a week apart from each other. Novak was born on the 22nd of May, yeah. while Andy was born on the 15th. So how, Andy's how just seven days that, older. That's crazy. That is yeah. crazy. And I actually love their matchups, and I love the style of play against each other, the best out of the big four. I feel, even though the match head-to-head is lopsided, that um, they match up well enough whenever they uh, play their matches it shows their pace and the flair that they give out on the court the best in my opinion yeah um, a lot of people that? don't like their matchups they think they play they, uh-huh. they have kind of similar styles of play like i don't feel that way but a lot of people feel that way so that's yeah. quite interesting yeah, that you, yeah. You're saying. i think i think um uh probably probably a good person to ask about this is is our guest today joe because yes. uh, like it's a bit it's the, the, <laughs> we just want to say to the murray musing fans that joe is an andy murray fan but he is also a very very big novak Djokovic fan so uh yeah joe like what do you what what's your what's your opinion on the um i think for me the the, the matches are sort of you know if it's on a if it's on a slower court which unfortunately a lot of the the courts on tour are quite slow these days and it it can sort of get into a sort of mode of it being a grind fest which is you know you know for there's a lot of long rallies and you know i'm not saying that's a bad thing because you know to watch players going toe to toe in an intense rally you know it takes some sort of skill to do and it's not like people just see them going 30-shot rallies and like, oh, that's boring, they've, they've gone too far in the rallies. But at the end of the day, it's, you've got to appreciate the endurance and um, the, the stamina, I suppose, are the same thing. But, you, you know, it's not easy to keep up a rally of 30 shots when they're not hitting the ball soft. They, they're still going for the shots. And yeah. you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And I can, I can see why some people that perhaps prefer more... You know, I, I like all styles of tennis, but you know, if you if you're someone that likes the contrast and of styles, I can see why they're not really enjoyable. If especially if the points are ending with an error, you know, you get to a point where one of them will, will go for it, and and it could be an unforced error, it could be a forced error, and people are like, oh, we want to see matches that are, are winners, whether it's a passing shot winner or whatever. So I think the the matches are sort of, for me anyway, I, I prefer them when they're on faster courts. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the the match in Shanghai 2012, I know that, <laughs> I know as you know for 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 an Andy perspective, it wasn't the the greatest result. Um, but in terms of the the level of quality, you know, I believe that was one of the best matches between the two. Um, you know, if you if you have a look at the the highlights on on YouTube, these you know three or four points from multiple good points where. 
you know, they're going for the shots, the, the, the counter-punching, and he just, that, that particular surface brought out more of a sort of an attacking style from both, I would say. But I, I don't necessarily think that it's an awful match-up. I can, you know, see where people are coming from, where they say it gets a bit boring. But, you know, in terms of the, the drama as well, if you look at the, the US Open final um, in 2012, you know, that's... Yeah, potentially not the best quality because of the the wind. Um, you know the conditions weren't great, but in terms of drama, you know you had the the, the one of the members of the Big Four going for his first Grand Slam, um, and then one of the members, you know, already cementing his status as as one of the best players and mm-hmm. going at, off the back of 2011. You know, and you you had Andy sort of racing to your two sets to love lead and you, you were thinking, that's it, he, he's got this in the bag and then back came Novak and it was, you know, Andy yeah. just got over the line at the end. So, you know, it was, yeah, the quality of, you know, the quality of the tennis might not have been great all the time, but, you know, the, there's not much you can do in conditions like that to to make it great. I mean, look at the, the US Open final between team and Zverev. Yeah. <laughs> last year, yeah, like 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 two two nervous guys thinking one of for the first slam. So yeah, you know, given the given the conditions, it wasn't great, but it wasn't awful either. And the the sort of drama of the the story, you know, helped out. Yeah, obviously you want to see good quality tennis, but in lieu of of good quality tennis, you want to see drama. You know, if if it was like um, two random players, you're not really invested in in like a challenger match in anywhere and they just um you know the the quality of tennis is bad and you know one of them sort of wins you know 6-1 6 6-3 or something like that that's not really entertaining if the quality of tennis is bad you know if the quality of tennis is good and it's that then fair enough but if the quality of tennis isn't great you want the drama to make yeah. up for it yeah, so I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I don't hate the matchup, um, and you know they had a good match after Shanghai in the ATP Finals, which again Novak won. But but you know, that sort of, <laughs> that sort of that sort of year, um, you know, they had a, a few good matches, um, quality wise, and I don't think it's awful in terms of yeah. matchup. But I think people probably not a massive fan of it because it's long. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the modern day tennis fan wants shorter matches. And I'm not saying we go Ben Ben Rothenberg <laughs> <laughs> sort of be, best of free best of free on everything, but you know I think there is a sort of argument where tennis fans do want not necessarily long sort of five six hour matches all the time. So I can see people's arguments there. And I'll put my hands up. I'm not advocating for getting rid of best of five, but. We're not you know, doing that. We're not doing that on this podcast. I want to keep it. I'm just sort of looking at, you know, other people's perspectives. For me, I don't really care. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I can see when you when you look at the um, the Wimbledon 2013 final, for example, um, you know, it was 6-4, 7-5, 6-4 in favour of Andy. But I think it was for a, a match that was three sets and it, I believe it went around three hours. You know, I so, saw... Yeah. I saw a, a match at Wimbledon the same year between, uh, I think it was uh, Jerzy Janowicz and Jürgen Meltzer that went five sets and that was done in like two hours, 20 minutes. Yeah. So I can see mm-hmm. in terms of length, length of the matches why people can get a bit frustrated with it. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there is a sort of clash of the styles. You've got to have one of them 
sort of stepping up and being the aggressor, which, you know, I feel does happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's yeah. the same way sort of when you see um, in, in terms of other, other big four rivalries, Novak against uh, against Rafa. I think the when you look at the the sort of base games, the the sort of attacking baseliners slash counter punchers, you know, whichever they're more comfortable with, but you'll see in that matchup, Novak becomes more aggressive, yeah, because yeah. it's because it's a more yeah. effective way to win. So you know, I think they can mix it up and not necessarily always be the same sort of grind fest. It just depends on the the sort of level going into the match and how they feel. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, I can, I can, I'm, I'm, I'm waffling on a bit, but you know, I can see why people don't always enjoy it. But I'm not saying it. Some of the time, it's not awful. I, I would, I would say, some of the time, it's not awful. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's been some poor matches, but on the same token, there's been good matches. You know, they've pe- they played thirty six times, which is insane. You can, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you, you can't expect perfection in yeah. everything. You know, at the end of the day, they're playing matches to win. They're their main goal when they step on the court is to to win the matches. So even even if people say, you know, this is crap, this is boring, I don't think either one of them is going to care at the end of yeah. the day. That you know that that that's the most important thing for them to win. So for sure, yeah. And for I, sure. I don't think it. I, I personally don't think it's as awful as as people make out. It's not it's not the best of the big four matchups, but it's not as mm-hmm. you know as as, as dreadful. The you know the 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 both legends of the game both been number one it's not like you're watching two sort of you know no disrespect to journeyman players but it's not like you're watching two journeyman man slog it out with moon balls yeah. at an, an itf futures event if they if that makes sense like mm-hmm. you know i think i think tennis fans are sort of overly critical of them because you know a lot prefer the sort of federer style of sort of offensive not, Offensive, yeah, like yeah. Full, full, full on offensive game, and mm-hmm. you know, in in terms of the big four, like Federer is the only one of the big four that plays that game style. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, you you think tennis in general is a more sort of now is more favourable to counter punchers and attacking baseliners and and, and even defensive players than it is to a an offensive player like Federer. Federer has had to adjust himself because of the slower courts. Another offensive player who is not in the big four, obviously, that has challenged the big four a lot is Nick Kyrgios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wimbledon yeah. 2014 was the the, yeah, the first sort of where he announced himself. That tournament was, yeah, like you're saying, in terms of offensive players, Nick is the yeah. one that sort of challenged them the most. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is it, it's, it's interesting because you think about it like... Uh, yeah, yeah. This is an episode on the big four, but we're gonna we're gonna segment off here and talk about Kyrgios. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Kyrgios, Kyrgios, uh, you know, as as had beaten all, had beaten Nadal, uh, Federer, and Djokovic uh, yeah. at the first time of asking, right? He beat them all at the fir- at the first match. Really? Oh yes. my god! Yeah, I yeah. think oh I think that is yeah. which is so, an insane uh, start. That's an insane start. Like to, so to wow. I believe it was sorry, Nadal Wimbledon 2014, uh, Federer Madrid 2015, and uh, Djokovic uh, Acapulco 2017. So yeah, first time of asking, and, which uh, is mind blowing, mind blowing to think of. And I think, and I think it took him like six times to beat Andy. <laughs> yeah, which you could unpack, you could unpack. Which I love that. that. 
That, that, that's uh, that's that that's just makes Andy the best member of the Big Four. That's, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. Let's wrap up. Think. That's fine, guys. Episode <laughs> over. We're done. Andy's best. Let's go home. Yeah. yeah. Didn't he beat Djokovic twice in a row in 2017? I think he did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it was uh, Acapulco and I think Miami. No, Indian Wells. Yeah. 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 yeah I think yeah, so. Yeah. 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 yeah it wasn't yeah. in Wales. Yeah. That's right. Because Djokovic was not playing well that time. But and yeah. the thing about Nick, he controversially says that he thinks Andy's a better player than Novak, which <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I don't know whether that's yeah. bias or, but, or whether Novak was in poorer form when he played him. I don't know. Uh, but that's Nick's opinion. <laughs> It's one of those. I think it is sort of you know Nick. Nick likes to stir the pot, and <laughs> yeah. you know, he knows that yeah, he, he knows that comment will get a reaction. And I mean, if you look at the head to head, it does show that Andy has troubled him more. And I, I don't know. I don't want to sound sort of controversial here. I don't know if that's because Nick gets on well with Andy, and he's not sort of mm. as Mot- as motivated, motivated and pumped yeah. up to to beat uh, Novak. You know, I don't think Novak was at his best. Uh, when Nick got those wins, but you know Novak yeah. stepped on the court and he he showed up, so you know he's, he's yeah. not he's not like he was unable to compete. And yeah, you know, I right. think it was I think it was Federer that said you know if you step on the court you yeah. you know you you're fit to compete. So I don't think any sort of win should be discredited. Yeah, Novak wasn't in his best form, but you're Nick right. still played well. Yeah. So another player who has challenged them a lot is obviously Stan Wawrinka, who beat them. Yeah. All three slam finals, he's beaten a big three player, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, actually, not Roger, correct? Not not all, every big three player, but he's beaten, I think, Novak twice and Rafa once. Yeah, Rafa was uh, Rafa was the first one. Uh, yeah. Australian 2014. Yep. From, from memory. Mm-hmm. And then French uh, 2015 mm. and US. Mm. Yeah. From memory. Yeah, so, yeah so, US as well. Yeah. yeah, and he's so also that, a very aggressive, offensive mm, player as well, yeah. especially with the backhand. I think you've got to have the the confidence to hit through them, um, and, and you know, you've got to sustain it for the whole match, and that's what Stan's done very well. You know, if if you look at the French Open, for example, you know the way he hit through Novak in that match on on a clay oh, court, man. a slow, a slow yeah. clay court. I think it, I think it does favour him. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. think the because everyone was like, "This is going to favour Stan at last year's Australian Open," but I think it was a bit too slow. But normal condition French Open, you know, if if Stan can sort of tee off on the backhand and the forehand and have the confidence mm. to hit through Novak, uh, the same with Rafa uh, as as well, because I think it's the same sort of thing he needs to do against Rafa. Um, you know, he can win, but I think the problem with with Stan when he does play face a big four because he's so good at what they do, if he's not firing, he gets trounced. You know, I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen multiple matches, uh, I think it's at the ATP finals, Novak against Stan. Um and they've all been, you know, straight set so, sort of routine wins for Novak. Because if mm-hmm. if Stan if Stan doesn't fire against any of the big four, he's toast. He's got to be playing his his prime level, which just Shows yeah. how good, you know, the big four are. You know, it's, he, mm. you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, he's because uh, he's had the few victories against Andy um, and, and won the same same amount of slams, and everyone's like, oh, he's better than Andy. But you know, comparable, like even Andy wins uh, in terms of the head to head. I think even Andy's leading that head to head. 
When people call it the big uh, five and, and like, yeah, say they're it's... equal. Um, bet, look I at the number of the Masters titles that Andy's won yeah. and look at the number and look at the, the weeks high. at number one. Look at uh, ATP finals. Like, look at the titles that Andy's yeah. won. So Andy mm. leads a head-to-head 12-9, so yeah, it's close, yeah. but it's still, you know, Career it's still... prize money and everything else, like, absolutely. you yeah, yeah. compare, you can yeah, And that's why it's a consistency thing, you know, Andy's, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's a big three, but sort of consistency level, you put Andy up there with the big focus, you know, if you compare him to Stan, which people are saying is on the same level as Andy, consistency-wise, Andy's much better He's pushed. Definitely. He's pushed the pushed the other members more. He's so he's he just goes to show how good they all are. And sure. Andy even beat him with a metal hip in, in an ATP final in twenty nineteen. So uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, yeah. I have a funny memory of watching that match. Antwerp, go on, yeah. go on. <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's legal to to discuss it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Let, let, oh, let's gosh. let's let's just say I I ate, I ate something beforehand and I was uh, <laughs> I, I, I I couldn't move and you know I just remember uh, watching this match whilst uh, quite uh, quite spaced out and just because I think because I think the um, from from what I remember it's it's very sort of foggy memory of the match but I think from what I remember. Um, in fact, let me uh, let me just check the um, the score. It's a three setter, isn't it? Yeah, it's a three yeah. setter. Yeah. But from what I remember, um, Stan was up. Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, quite quite often, and and you know, I just remember being there, like when Andy was coming back and and, and sort of fighting to come back because I think it was the uh, Andy lost the first set, and I think he might have been down in the second. Yep. And then he got that back, and then I think he might have been down in the third. If my memory serves me yeah. right, so he was down quite often. I just remember, you know, it was on a metal hip, and he'd, you know, he'd just come back, and I was just like laughing at how much of a legend he was because I was yeah. <laughs> yeah. just that like there. But no, it was, uh, it, yeah. But it, it's kind of, I know we talk, we might be talking about the big four, but it's sort of crazy that match, um, uh, Roland Garros 2017 uh, between Andy oh. and Stan. That was sort of the that was sort of the downfall in a way into recent times for both of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Andy with his hip and and Stan with his knee, it sort of took it out of the both of them. It did. Yeah. And, and yeah. I don't think yeah. either of them have been uh, been the same since, really, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah Andy's definitely better. It is a a big four, not a big five. That's why we have you on this episode, Joe, just so you can say that. Uh, At risk of going a bit off tangent here, I was going to ask, you know, uh, Andy and Stan played last at the French Open last year, 2020 French Mm -hmm. Open. Andy lost quite easily. And Mats Wielander, we've talked about this a few times already, had a few comments uh, about that match and Andy's performance in that match and wild cards. Joe, what did you think about that? Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Like the there's no criteria for wild cards. Uh, I don't agree with the wild card system as a whole, but if they're there, the tournament's discretion to use them how they wish. And if a tournament wants to use them to give it to a legend of the game who's coming back from hip surgery. You know, has made has made the final 
of the French yeah. before and, exactly. and made and made multiple semi-finals as well. Um, you know, it's it's their discretion. You know, no disrespect to you know the local sort of French wildcard that may have got it instead, but they get it. The they lose first round, they collect a paycheck, but no disrespect to them, and I'm not going to name any French players' names because you know it's a it's a huge opportunity for them, and and I understand in a sense tournaments using it that way, but they collect this paycheck. What does the tournament gain from it? From it, if you know what I mean. Whereas giving it to Andy, who's I know it's different last year because they only had they had a cap on fans anyway. But say for example, it was a you know a full full attendance, and you know Andy Murray three time Slam winner, Olympic gold medalist, Davis Cup winner versus a French player that's you know never been ranked higher than two hundred in the world. Mm-hmm. Who are who are people going to pay and see? So yeah. yeah, even if Andy crashes out in the first round the likelihood is this French player play would have lost in the first round as well. What, what in terms of money, the tournament's making more money from gate sales, uh, you know, advertising revenue broadcasting. I don't know how, exactly how that works, but the tournament's probably going to make more money from Andy Murray playing than a random French player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one, one exception, one exception to that is Hugo Gaston. Uh, he mm-hmm. got a wild card last year. Beat yes. Wawrinka, yeah. Beat, yeah. Nearly beat Dominic, and that was really widely viewed. And again, coming back to the yeah. argument about five set matches and how people don't like watching matches for that long, everybody was watching that match at the time. Uh-huh. It was yeah. a very popular yeah. match. Absolutely, and, and that's the thing. It's uh, with the wild wild card system. They call the wild cards for a reason because you don't know what's going to happen with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 the reason behind the name, like. The likelihood of a wild card, you know, going all the way is very unlikely. I don't know what the stats are. If we if we pulled up the stats, mm-hmm. the majority of them do lose first round. But yes, you do get the occasions where a play, player like Andy will get them. And personally, while the system is there, I think he's more than worth getting one. But the majority of players that get them are players that get them because they've um, the, the the federation wants them to get a, like a first round lost paycheck. There's no sort of two ways about it, you, That's you know. An like, point. you know, the, the the and even the you know the 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 odd wild card. I actually prefer the system like uh, Wimbledon has, where they give the wild cards. Yes, there'll be. And I'm not saying the wild card system Wimbledon uses is perfect, but there will be at least two or three reserved for players that played the challenges. Yeah. The grass court challenges leading up to Wimbledon, and I like that idea. Like 2014, uh, Kyrgios's Wimbledon wild card was because he won the uh, the Nottingham Challenger. That's how he got in. I think he would have had to he would have had to play qualies if he um, didn't win that challenger. But he got the wild card, and, and you know, look what happened. Mm-hmm. It's like the, so. Then they're given a wild card to players that they know have the ability to like win matches, and yes. like win in a row, and win in pressure moments. Yeah, that does make yeah. more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and as I said, he, 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 considering how sort of flawed the system is, it would be more ideal to just get rid of it completely and just open up more space for you know the players that I don't know what the cut off is for slams, but. It's usually the 
the sort of top 96 that get in, I think, and then qualies and, and wild cards just open up more space for direct acceptance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than having the wild card system. I, I just don't think it's generally a fair system. But as I said, whilst it's being utilised, there's no rules or yeah. anything like that. So I don't think people have the right to complain because at the end of the day, it's a tournament's discretion. And you have, you know, the the, the, the other flaws with them are like the reciprocal wild cards. Like you'll have the, the best performing, I think the best performing American player used to or still does get a, like an Australian open wild card yep. for the sort of... I think it used to just be the challenges and then they changed it to include all ATP events um, from sort of like the middle of October to the end of the season. Mm. And, you know, that's a bit unfair. The best American player, you know, for the... For the for the players outside of those countries that might still play those events, so say for example you're a, a South American that goes to these American challengers and and performs better than any American, and there isn't a, any American on the in the ATP events that performs better than you either. You amass the most amount of points, but because you're not from America, you don't have the chance to to get that wild card. Yeah, because the yeah. you know it's it's sort of federations giving each of each federation a favor. Yep. It just doesn't make sense. So just scrap it, just scrap it completely, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I I guess what we're all trying to say is, as long as Andy Murray keeps getting wild cards, it's fine. Like, yep. like we're fine with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like. Like I said, whilst the system's still in place, you know, I see, I see no issue with him getting any yeah. wild cards. The, the, I don't see any issue at all whilst the yeah. system's still in place. Yeah, I would agree with that. Where do you, where do we want to go now, guys? <laughs> What's our next topic? I wanted to ask about the, I wanted to ask about the rankings. Uh, I don't know whether, like, you know how with the coronavirus, the ranking system has changed a bit, and it kind of impacts history in a way. It's yeah. impacting history in a way because Novak mm-hmm. is about to pass Roger, and then week's a number one, isn't he? Yeah, he should be pretty close, right, Jim? I think he's on three hundred and one or three hundred and three. I'm not sure which one it is. I've I've seen it mentioned on Twitter, so he's he's getting he's getting very close. Um, you know, it's one of those like it is going to happen, uh, <laughs> sort of. I think mathematically now it's the the chance of chances of it not happening are very yeah. low. The Australian Open is I still think it's your best result. So even if he lost first round of the Australian Open, I still think he keeps his result from last year. So oh yeah, you know, he's sort of nailed on. And in, you know, in terms of ranking, it's it's just unfortunate. As I said, I've I've got very confused about the ranking system and numbers. I get confused with numbers and everything. But yeah, I think no matter what they did. It would have been difficult either way because you you know you've got to have a fine line. At the end of the day, we are in a pandemic. Um, exactly. And... <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like Andy Andy Murray is at 120 in the world right now or something, That's and right. it's yeah. a bit sad. I thought it was a bit sad that he didn't get to build that ranking up last year. I think he yeah. had a big chance. Yeah. He had a big chance. Indian Wells was where it all started. He was ready to play that tournament, 
and then coronavirus yeah. happened and ruined it for him so I mean it was interesting watching like the stop start element of Andy last year because he tried to start and then you know realized like the the, the issues in the world were like kind of holding him back a wee bit you mm. know like you saw him trying to start in the you know the French Open and then you saw him like now like he like popped up now and then but he didn't really really like get himself moving did he like he didn't yeah really kind of... I hope he gets that chance this year I was quite gutted the Australian Open last year. We couldn't make it because obviously yeah. I went and yes. uh, yeah. yeah, I was I was I was looking forward to it. I know the hip was okay, but it was the uh, pelvis, he had a, yeah. the the issue with a pelvis, like relating to the surgery that it was sore. Yeah. You know, I was mm-hmm. really really looking forward to because obviously he had the um, the retirement. It was the year after, yeah. To, it was. The was it two thousand and nineteen or was it two thousand and eighteen? Yeah, 2018, the, I, 19, the 19. yeah 19. but he, he he had that and then. Uh, you know, it was it sort of like full circle yeah. going, and, and you know, and, and and seeing seeing him returning from that would have been abso- absolutely amazing. Really, I know I know he'd played since, um, but but seeing him at the back at the event where you know everyone was yeah. like, and I, I I know he didn't explicitly say that he was retiring, but they sort of. Yeah, sort sort of waved him off because he said he did he didn't know whether this was the end or not and he sort of <laughs> took took that as retirement and, and, and waved him off. So it would have been nice to, you know, see him come back and be like, you know, I'm still here and, yeah. and stuff like that. But no, that was uh, that was quite disappointing and <laughs> and yeah, I think uh, I think the thing is like I don't think people really sort of have, have said much about this. You know, when you've got injuries and you, you come back from them, the the most important thing is to get match time. You know, you, you people don't talk about it enough. Your body sort of you get when you're playing with the injury, your body gets used to that, and then it gets to a point where you have to have the surgery. And when you have the surgery, you're not used to playing with the changes in your body. So I think the most important thing is the match time and playing you know i'm not saying it he, he would have been easy for him to play sort of every week but this stop start thing wasn't yeah, sort of helpful no. if if that makes sense you know having some more consistency in terms of a schedule and not you know it, it's just been difficult for him to sort of get the consistency adjust to his body after the surgery and and you know stuff like that yeah. Um. And I, I, I mean, I know he played in 2019, but he he'd only just start sort of started tail end playing singles again. Yeah. So yeah. He, you know, it was it was difficult. And then he bruised bruised his pelvic area. Yeah, the pelvic. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, yeah. kind of tossed him a little bit as well, didn't it? But um, but like Joe, just on the uh, you know, you, you obviously were at the Australian Open uh, a few years mm-hmm. back. Uh, I feel like like we have you on here, and you are like one of the most unique tennis fans because you've actually been to all four Grand Slams. So we yep. we need to have, have you seen Andy at any of them? Yeah, so I've uh, I've seen him at the um, the US. Right. I've seen him at um, Wimbledon right. uh, a few times, and from memory, I didn't see him at the French. So the uh, the the US and, and and Wimbledon are the ones I've seen him at, and obviously Australia, I missed out. But yeah, I've seen him seen him the the US. Uh, it was twenty eighteen. Okay, I believe it was against James Duckworth. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And Wimbledon multiple times. The first time was in 2013 uh, against uh, Mikhail Yuzny from memory. All right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I've seen him play doubles. So I saw him 2019 play doubles with um, 
Herbert. Serena oh. Williams. I didn't see oh, him with Herbert. I oh, nice. mixed, mixed, mixed doubles mixed with doubles. Serena. Oh, that's amazing it, uh, that you got to see that. Uh, that's so insane cool. experience. We, we, insane we were watching experience. it. Uh, we were watching it on the uh, the hill, um, and then because it was quite late. The made yeah. it an open court, which is very rare at Wimbledon. It's the first time I've been to Wimbledon where they've made it an open court. So they were just like, wow. they, they were just like, it was centre court. Um, I don't know if it was a to be decided match, and they put it on centre court, and it was like um, centre court is now an open court. So you didn't even need to queue for like resale tickets. You could just walk in. So like wow. we like we just Same. we just. Re- we just rushed over and you know you know saw that um i've been fortunate to see him you know a couple of times at wimbledon i saw i saw him practice before the 2016 final i've got a grounds pass for the days day of the ladies final um oh. I, I, I didn't even have to queue i think i literally rocked up at nine and because you can't queue for show court tickets on the like the day of the, the 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 finals at wimbledon and the women's final is always a bit quieter on the ground than the men's so i just queued you know for grounds passes and it was a day before the men's and i you know i saw him practice on the uh i think it was court 19 which you've got rid of now uh mm-hmm. but you know that was a nice experience i got a picture with him as well nice. you know, so that was a that was a that was a cool experience that's insane. Yeah, yeah I, while we're here, while Joe is with us, I wanted I wanted to go off topic a bit and talk about like the fan experience on social mm-hmm. media and the media, because uh, he's a big Novak fan, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of talk there for years. There's been a lot of talk that Novak has been treated unfairly by the media mm-hmm. and fans. Uh, Roger and Rafa have been favored with better court court assignments, better mm-hmm. uh, positions in like tweets and uh, they tweet more about Roger if he wins and I don't know there's Mm. a lot of nuances to it but I wanted to know what Joe thinks about this yeah absolutely um so I definitely think from a you know sort of media perspective and uh, a fan perspective that that Novak does sort of catch more flack than the the other you know if we we don't include Andy because I think Andy's coverage has been fair and yeah if you look at the if you look at the big three um because you know they've been the more prominent ones unfortunately over the last few years I wish Andy was up there as well but in the last few years it has been Roger Rafa and, and Novak and I think if you compare the three you know he's definitely been quite negative towards Novak you know, and I'm I'm not saying that that Novak is perfect. You know, I'm not going to be biased and say he's a saint or anything like that. You know, there's some things he didn't say, especially last year. You know, with the um, the I mean the the ad, the adjutor itself. Um, I don't think it was. I think that was you know a genuine genuine mistake. They weren't sort of really. Uh, you know, it was done with good intentions, but they didn't realise the scale of of COVID and. You know, I think in that area they they weren't weren't as aware of how it spread, and they were sort of going in that time going on about as like life as normal, and it was good. It, it was it was done with good intentions. You know, the the, the tickets uh, were going towards charity and stuff like that, but it was just sort of a mistake. At the end of the day, I don't think it was it was done with any any ill intentions. I know there was like the the memes going around social media about it being a super spreader event and everything like that, which. Unfortunately, you know, there was increased cases around that time, but I don't think it was a catastrophe, but it was mm-hmm. just a sort of not the right time. Yeah. It, it was kind of rushed, potentially, I don't know, or just not planned that well. And, you know, there was that. Um, 
which again, you know, the media and fans were not really sort of, you know, realising that it wasn't a bad-intentioned event. Yeah, you know, and he... the same goes for the US Open default. I was really shocked at the yeah. bad press that he got from that. I was uh, really shocked. Yeah. Because I he yeah. didn't mean to do that. He didn't no, mean no, to do no, that. No, 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 no. And no, he, he got a lot yeah. of bad press from people that didn't even know about mm-hmm. tennis, didn't follow it. He was everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was quite shocked. Thing, like, you know, I can look at the... I mean, for, for me, the sort of most disappointing things he's done is with that, I, I don't know the guy's name, but, like, the magic potion stuff and, and, and stuff like that, like... <laughs> I can't... Oh, the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that know, was like, bad. Altern- Alternative, yeah, alternative yeah, medicine. Yeah, you know, stuff, like, yeah, like for yeah. me, I'm, you know, and, and again, it's it's his personal choice and everything like that, but for me, science always wins. Absolutely. For yeah. for me personally, you know the, these these guys are you know sort of trained in it, and you know you can't be believing alternative things. You know I'm not. I I will say on the flip side, Novak does get a lot of abuse for being you know religious and spiritual. Yeah. But you know personally, personally, I've got nothing wrong with that. But in terms of like water and and stuff like that, and these potions, I just don't think that's very sort of helpful and you know it, it can give some people you know the wrong impression and yeah. the wrong idea about things and, and the wrong cope so in terms of that yeah i'm not not defending that and you know in terms of in terms of media coverage and fan coverage i definitely think that yeah some of the the, the stuff that novak gets isn't fair you know like his celebrations for example um, oh yeah i always find that sort of a bit odd because at the end yeah. of the day, you, he's playing a sport. He's playing to win, and you, I don't. I don't. I think a lot of people that criticise it have, have not played sport. Like yeah. mm. when I play tennis, if you know, if I if I win a point, whether it's with a winner or I win a big point with my opponent hitting an unforced error, I'm going to yeah. celebrate it. Oh, I'm giving it, I'm giving it, I'm giving it a yeah. fist bump, I'm yeah. giving it a come on, I'm giving uh, it, it, it a... You know, at the at the end of the day, you're playing to win, you're playing yeah. for money, you're playing for trophies. Whether mm-hmm. you've won a point by hitting a winner or your yeah. opponent hitting an unforced error, it doesn't matter. And yes, some players show more, more emotion than others. Like, you'll get um, sort of like... Federer, for example, that he can give it on celebrations, but there'll be some times where he's very casual with his celebrations. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a commonality there with Andy and Novak. Both of them, mm-hmm. like Andy, mutters a lot, swears a lot. Uh, yeah. Novak mm-hmm. does the same yeah. thing. Um, gets mm-hmm. a lot of criticism for that as well. I, I just wanted yeah. to, to know what Peter thinks because Peter is interesting because he. <laughs> <laughs> he exactly I've remained silent through was, most of this. I was just going to bring this like, up. No I comment. <laughs> I mean, I have, uh, like uh, Joe was saying about um, the water and whatnot, my dad is actually the editor of the Journal of Tropical Medicine, um, and so he's done a lot of malarial studies and whatnot. So I feel like with Novak putting out a lot of stuff, especially in a global pandemic, it's just not good Mm -hmm. as a role model. But going on to the celebrations and whatnot, I feel like if you're getting uh, your opponent's unforced errors on you, I mean, if you're playing a lot of rallies or if you've like narrowly escaped something, it's like, yeah, I would fist pump too. I mean, yeah. exactly. why not? I mean, 
in a way, it's not an outright winner, obviously, but you've done something to win the point. So, and at the end of the day, you, you your opponents probably are hitting unforced errors because you're forcing them to to go for more. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, another thing I was thinking about in terms of the sort of media and fan criticism when Novak says, you know, he wants to break the records and, and, and be number one. Exactly. He get he, he gets criticism for that, which is again another baffling thing. You know, he's he's one of the greatest players of all time. Um, of course he'd you know, want he, to break he, records. He could, like... he could potentially break the Grand Slam record, he could potentially break the weeks at number one and, and stuff like that. If if he's not got them goals in mind and and, and aiming for them, what's the point in him playing now? Because he's yeah. he's already achieved so much. So at the, at the end of the day, he's still playing, you know, for those goals. You know, I don't I don't believe when people say players just play for the love of the game. That's rubbish. That that's absolutely rubbish. Like they're all making more money and and winning more trophies by winning tournaments yeah it's a it's it's a kind of it's a kind of pr answer isn't it yeah and i think i think i think if you look at the way that the big four generally have been treated you have like rafa and roger who uh i mean in my opinion and i think i think generally we would all agree even even peter (laughs) (laughs) is that uh, rafa and roger have generally been treated really really well by the press because Mm. they're an easy sell uh, like they're they're very easy to like write stories on and make out like they're like you know oh they're so nice and so pleasant all the time and so you know and nice to the real, fans stuff. Let's be real here, um, you know, if 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 you get a lot of Rafa fans saying, oh Rafa plays for the love of the game, he's, yeah. he's not playing for trophies and and not playing for number one, but you know without. I'll try not to swear here, but that's a load of rubbish. Like, <laughs> he, 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 I could have been worse. I could have been worse, but he definitely plays for records, money, and you 100%. know, be, being number one. Like, and they all do, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the whole point of the sport. Yeah, they're playing to win. Like, if they weren't, if they weren't, if they didn't have that mindset, they wouldn't be top of the game. You know, no. they're not. They're not. Yeah. You know, if if like you know like. Federer was a very talented player, but he didn't give a shit about winning, and he didn't give a mm-hmm. shit about the money or, or whatever. He'd mm-hmm. maybe he'd maybe be ranked, you know, in the fringes of the top one hundred. But yeah. because he cares about it so much, he's he's thirty nine years old. You know, if 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 he if he really didn't care anymore about those things, yeah, there might be a hint of him playing for the love of the game because he's still going on for so long but he's still good enough to be near the top of the rankings to win tournaments to get more money yes he's he's probably got all, enough money to set him for life i think the uh the uniqlo contract is worth what 300 us dollars 300 a disgusting million, amount of money three hundred million australian dollars but yeah you know he the rich enjoy getting richer. <laughs> yeah. And then, at the end of the day, there's you know there's nothing wrong with that. No. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize them for wanting to earn more money. Like, no. why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why yeah. Not? Like if that's what they're yeah. stepping out there for. Yeah. How 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 do you, yeah how do you like how do you guys because yeah I guess like me Rashmi and Peter will have plenty more time to talk about this but like Joe how do you see like yeah like the Murray. Djokovic hmm. slash Murray Federer slash Murray Rafa kind of rivalries continuing, or do you even see them continuing? Do you think 
Um, I mean, the, the the main problem with this year is it's uh, it's tough to say because of the pandemic and what's going on with that. Um, obviously, uh, Roger isn't playing the Australians, so we'll be starved of any sort of matches between those two. Um, I think this year is probably going to sort of be mainly uh, Novak and um, Rafa, really, if, if, you know, if they do play, uh, because, you know, they're still ranked in the top one and two players in the world, I think. Am mm-hmm. I right? Or is he... Yeah. Yeah. He's... yeah. yeah. Dominic yeah. is close, though. Dominic is really close. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're still ranked top one and two in the world. You, you know, you've got Don, uh, team and uh, Medvedev behind. But, you know, in terms of the, the, the two meeting, it's going to be those two in finals, potentially. Um, you know, Andy's ranked back at... Unfortunately, he's ranked back at one, two, three. So, when he does return, we could potentially see meetings between him and Novak and him and Rafa, but it's going to be in the early, early rounds. It's going to be events, really weird. It's going to be really which, weird. Which would <laughs> yeah. be strange, but there's no, the, the problem is when, you, when you've when not got a seed in, it's all luck of the draw. So he might not end up in their sections or he might lose, touch what he doesn't, but he might lose before facing them. So it's, you know, it's difficult to predict, you know, what if there is going to continue to be sort of a big four full big four rivalry, especially with, with, with the uncertainty of Roger as well. You know, I think Andy's definitely going to give it a go. Um, you know, and I, I do think he's going to get back to a decent level, but, it, you know, it might be more next year if, you know, if they're all still playing. I don't, you know, there's hints that Roger might give it a call it quits after this year. But you know, if they're all around next year, it might be next year where we sort of see, could be like the last sort of hurrah next year. It's very tough to see it being a consistent thing between the the four of them. I think, I think the last year where it was uh, where it was really sort of. I know we've had sort of, it's sort of been intertwined. You know, there's been years. For example, two thousand and sixteen was uh, was Novak and Andy. Uh, two thousand and seventeen was Roger and Rafa, and you know, two thousand and eighteen was uh, Novak and Rafa. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, I think. yeah. And, and, and two thousand and nineteen, the same. So the, the, it's been intertwined, and I think the the last year where the, where they were all sort of really all at the the top level was was probably two thousand and twelve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very it's very hard to see them because of their age and because of the uncertainty with the pandemic. You know, it's very hard to see them all being at the you know I don't think they're ever going to any of them are ever going to reach the best level again I know that you know Novak and Rafa are still better than the rest I don't think they're at the best level they've ever been at but it's very hard to see them all all four of them especially with team and and Medvedev and uh, that guy from Germany breaking through with them it's very hard to see it being a consistent all four of them and you know I think you know, you know, Peter mentioned the stats at the start of start of the podcast. It's been for a while. You know, they are amazing stats, but it's been for a while where it's been sort of two of them, maybe three in yeah. one go, sort of at the, the 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 top level at the same time. Because you know, Roger's taken time out for injury. Well, I mean, they all have now. You know, yeah. you, you know, they all have. You you, you had uh, Novak with his elbow. Roger with his knee, um, Andy with his back and his hip, and Rafa with all sorts. 
Sorry, Rafa fans, but I think, <laughs> I think his list, list of injuries is, you know, it's quite quite substantial. And, you know, we're lucky that when they do come back from injury, we at least get to see two of them, you know, at the top of the game. But at the same time, um, you know, it can't be them forever. And I think we are, I mean, we've probably been saying this for years, uh, but I think potentially with the pandemic, helping out a bit we are sort of edging to a new era if none of the slams have been won by the big four or if sorry one of the four has been won by the big four and the rest have been won by other players you know maybe we can say that the sort of big four era as such is over but you know if in a year's time you know at least two of the four have been won by the big four you know what are we going to say yeah. is are these are these yeah. guys going to be dominating the tour whilst using Zimmer frames still. <laughs> I mean, I think Nadal will still, biggest... still be at the French, still winning that. <laughs> yeah. uh... So, uh, Joe has a good story uh, for us. This is an Andy podcast, obviously. And Joe has had a good encounter with Andy and one of his rackets. Yeah, yeah so um, it's uh, it's quite, it feels ages ago now, but the ATP Finals 2015 I'd, I think it was my second year going to sort of multiple matches, uh, and this was a uh, round robin match between uh, Andy and Stan, and it was uh, it was quite heated um, between the two. Uh, and in the match, Andy smashed one of his rackets in one of the sets. Again, memory doesn't serve me rightly which one it was, and you know I've always thought you know I've seen it happening before at events where. Players have, have thrown the smash racket in the crowd, whether it's you know after the match or mid-match or whatever. And I thought, you know, this is this this might be a cool uh, memento. Sorry, and I was at the seats where the players, you know, walk out, and I was like, I'm going to shout over and ask him for it. And it, you know, it kind of felt a bit weird because he just lost the match. Unbelievable! Yeah, it, it, it felt a bit weird because he just lost the match, but you know it was like a tiered seating, and where I was, it was like slanting down, and you could lean over and hang over the exit where the the players walk out and and walk in. Uh, so I'd position myself in this place, and you know I'd shouted as Andy was walking out. You know, Andy, can I have your racket? And he stopped, unzips his bag because I I'd clocked him. You know, obviously you've got to see if you if you'd given it away before. I'd you know I clocked him putting it in his bag and everything like that. And said, Andy, can I have your racket? And he didn't say anything. He just unzipped his bag and threw it up towards <laughs> threw wow. it up towards me. But the thing is, I, I, I've said this before. I sort of had a grip on it, but only on the strings. And some sort of he must have been sort of twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old kid. Had got had got hold of the handle, so he had a better grip. He had a better grip of it, and he got the racket, and I had nothing. So for like you know five five ten minutes, we were discussing it because you know this was a kid, sort of you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and I didn't want to sort of feel bad by saying no. It was you know I I was the one that asked for it, and you know just give it me or anything like that. So we had to you know. <laughs> I think he, I think he, me. I think he was with with his uncle or something like that. You know, we had a discussion for sort of like five five or so minutes, and then apparently, I don't know how true this is, but apparently he'd already got a, a smash racket of Roger Federer's from one of his uh, practices years ago. I don't know how true this was because yes. wow. <laughs> Federer Federer never smashes his racket, so I don't know. I don't know if this was true or it was a, just a random Wilson racket from a bin or something, but. Um, 
But no, he, um, you know, we had this discussion, and I think it was with his uncle. And then he's, you know, he said in the end, you know what, it was, you know, it was you who asked for it, and you know, if uh, if you hadn't have asked for it, you wouldn't have thrown it up anyway. So obviously, yeah. I, I, I got the racket. Um, you know, I was thinking if if it was a younger kid, you know, if it was like a kid that was sort of five, six years old, I would have yeah. let them have the racket with no discussion, you know. And in the, in the in the discussion, it wasn't like you know we was we was fighting or anything. You know, you see these videos of adults snatching towels away or yeah, like like other mementos away from younger people. And you're like, I was so it was back in 2016, so I would have been 22, 23. So yeah. so you know you know I was older and than this kid obviously, and I was like, you know, I don't want to look like an idiot or. Um, you know, arrogant or anything like that. So, you know, it was, the, I didn't just take it. If you know what I mean, you know, we had this discussion and, you know, he agreed that, you know, it was me that asked for it. So, so it should be mine. So yeah, I got the racket and I was like, you know, this is cool, but you know, I wanted to get it signed. Um, you know, I've got, I've got the racket. I want to get it signed. So, you know, the first thing I did, you know, naturally you, you look online for sort of contact details and, you know, by this time Andy was part of of 77 Management and, you know, I was emailing them and I emailed them and, and said, you know, I've got this racket, is there a, a chance I can get it signed? And, you know, I never heard back. Um, yeah. It's like, I'm never going to get it signed. And I was like, I went to Wimbledon in, in 2016, but I wasn't going to take it to Wimbledon with me because... You, know, you you would never get it any wherever you queued or um, yeah. just had a general admin, admi, admission ticket because Wimbledon security is quite strict and because it's a, a smash racket, they would have been like sharp object. Yeah, you're out. <laughs> you're, you're out. <laughs> but the but the thing is, you know, I actually and and this you know back then I wasn't as sort of um, confident and and you know I had a lot of big anxieties back then. Uh, I actually, I think it was the first day of Wimbledon. Uh, I got a taxi, and I didn't. I don't think I said anything to the guy, but I got a taxi, and in it was actually um, Andy Murray's, uh, one of Andy Murray's managers. Uh, do you know Josh Murray? Do you know <laughs> oh, Josh wow. Murray? Yeah, yeah. Jo- <laughs> Josh Murray was in the taxi, um, and you know, and I didn't really say anything. You know, he. I think he covered the cost of the taxi. You know, when you're getting those taxis up to Wimbledon, you know, it's kind of sort of like common for, because I think it's like a split fare and not everyone always has the right change. So a lot of the time someone will just give the taxi driver a tenner and, you know, if there's four of you in the cab, they'll just say, I'll pay for it. And it, and he was in it. And I was like, I was like, should I ask him? Should I ask him? And I was like, no, mouth shut, mouth sits. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't say a thing. I just, I just thanked him for, uh, for, for paying for the taxi. And I was like, I'm like, I was kicking myself after. I was like, I've missed an opportunity. Like, if that had have happened like now, I would have, I would have said something. I would have been like, oh, you're, you, you, you I recognise you. you I'm sorry for disturbing you, but you're Andy Murray's manager. But back then, I was like, there's no chance I'm doing that. <laughs> so, so. Um, I was like, it came to the, the the tour finals, you know, a year later, um, and I, can't, I think I stayed when I used to go. I used to stay in hotels, uh, you know, when it was still financially viable. Yeah. <laughs> um, for for the time I went, and uh, you know, it was it, it turned out to be the year that Andy was doing really well, and he was he was chasing number one. I was like, I'm going to take the racket down with me there because the security is not as sort of strict in terms of what you take in. And uh, and try and get it signed there, and 
I can't remember whether it was before the semi-final. I think it was before the semi-final, but it might have been before the final. I actually can't remember. Again, I've not, I've not got the greatest memory. I'll remember some random things and I won't remember other things. But anyway, I was like, I'm going to take it in with me. So I had my backpack there and just this racket handle sticking out of the back. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, going through the O2 security and... <laughs> they didn't say a thing like i thought you know they're gonna be like you know what's this or anything like that they didn't say a thing i don't even think mm-hmm. they knew it was smashed and uh and then you sort of you go in and you know this was my um would have been my fourth time at the o2 so i, I kind of knew the area well and it was uh andy's practice the um so it would have been an evening session and the practice uh before the doubles and it was like you know i'm gonna get it signed and you know, there was there was hardly anyone around because because people, unless you really know what you're doing, people don't generally show up until the doubles is over. Yeah, so it's like casual fans. So there was like me and yeah. sort of like five others. I can't remember. Zainab might have been there actually, but I can't remember <laughs> if she was. But mm. anyway, like it was literally hardly anyone, and you know, I just go to the front row, be like right next to where they the the uh, come out and. I got it signed, and because I was like proper nervous, I didn't really say anything. <laughs> I just, I just said, you know, can you sign this and thank you? And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm looking back on it now, and I'm like proper regretting it. Like I, I should have said something here because, because you can see the picture, and like Andy's just got this sort of mild, bemused look on his face, like, yeah, you know, what, that what, 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 what's so this and everything like that, but. No, you know, it was, he was good to know. He must have recognised it. He must have recognised it. Yeah, I, fi- sure. I think so. I think it was just because I was being, you know, dead nervous that he, uh, I didn't yeah. say anything because it was quite, you know, it's not like usually you get like a, um, you know, a towel or a, a programme signed. This was like Andy Murray's smash racket. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, but no, it was, uh, you know, I've got I've got some great sort of tennis mementos over the years, but memorabilia. But that's you know that's obviously you know getting it one year and then the next year getting it signed, which was the year he actually won the tournament. So you, you know, kind of contrasting like I think in 2015 he went out in the the group stages, and then you know the following year he was he won it and became number one and you know, getting it sort of like from agony to ecstasy, really, like the story of when yeah. when I look back at it, like getting it that the one year and then sign the next year where he's, you know, world number one. It's, it's quite cool. And yeah. I just need to, uh, I just need to get it framed now. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, like for all the fans, for all the Andy fans listening to this, right, you guys can't see the racket, but Joe's just got it like kicking around in the corner of his room. He's had it just sitting there uh, for like four or five years. Like... It, 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 <laughs> If any, if 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 anyone recommends a good sporting framers or <laughs> or if someone wants to volunteer to do it for me, <laughs> anyone listening, I would greatly appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's probably. I guess that's probably a good a good time to wrap up this episode. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great uh, stories to end on. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Murray Musings. I hope you all enjoyed our discussion about Andy Murray and the rest of the Big Four. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Murray Musing, along with our contributors, uh, Rashmi at Dry Volleys, Scott at Barclay Card eighteen. And my name is Peter, also known as Tyguy84 on Twitter. Thanks again to our wonderful guest, Joe. You can find him at Joe underscore tennis on Twitter.
two underscores. Just to... Oh, two? <laughs> two okay. Yes, yes. Two underscores. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for, for thanks for having me on. Thank it's been you, really Joe. enjoyable. I appreciate that, guys. We'll, thank we'll, you. We'll definitely Come back again, again next uh, soon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.